You may be seated. I'm going to try to keep this short today. Uh, I know that extenuating circumstances have, have come up, and, and that's the important thing. But I have a few things that I want to talk to you guys about today in uh, the realm of politics. I know it's a little bit taboo to talk about politics from the pulpit, but since I'm not ordained, I get a pass, right? Right. All right okay. Anyway. All right. We're going to talk about how to vote as a Christian. And uh, the scripture we're going to be reading from today is Matthew 7, 7 through 12. So those of you with your Bible, it's uh, Matthew 7, 7 through 12. And this is the common English <coughs> translation, the common English Bible that I'll be reading from today. Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Ask and you will receive, search and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, whoever seeks, finds, and everyone who knocks, the door is opened. Who among you will give your children a stone when they ask for bread, or give them a snake when they ask for fish? If you uh, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, you should treat your people in the same way that you want people to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. This is God's Word. This year is an election year, and the 2012 presidential election is uh, campaigning as well under its, on its way, in case you haven't noticed. And... Uh, what will you do when you enter the ballot box? Have you given much thought about that? I, mean, I know it seems a little bit like repetition. Every so often we have elections and you kind of go in and they've got the curtain and it kind of smells in there. And so you take your little pencil and you fill out the dot. But what will you do with your mind while you're inside that ballot box? Many people ask, act as if the choice is already obvious. Uh, if you're not pleased with the last four years, you're probably going to vote for Romney. If uh, you believe that uh, policies just haven't yet taken hold and the next four years could be even more promising, then you're likely to vote for uh, Barack Obama. But I have a unique question for you this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, how should you vote? That's tough, right? It, if you've declared yourself all in for this mission that we say that we are for, which is leading people in new life with Jesus, then exactly what should you be doing in the voting booth? Some might think that the two are unrelated, following Jesus and American politics, but in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Allegiance to Jesus is absolutely and unequivocally political. And we'll discover more about that in a moment. At least for us United Methodists, we do have a church father to look forward to, that, uh, that we look back to, that will give us some voting directions. And we'll talk about that more this morning as well. Many of us know what it's like to uh, have a political viewpoint and to have political opponents. And even if we do not hold public office, uh, some of you I know that are uh, still in school or some of you in your past school days ran for maybe for a, uh, some sort of school office, maybe student council or uh, class treasurer, st uh, student body president. Sometimes that gets rough. Sometimes that gets really nasty. And so we want to, we want to get there just a little bit. Even those of us uh, who are uh, pastors or church leaders have uh, lots of politics in the church. As people jockey for leadership positions in, in the denomination, as pastors try to influence the denomination with their various theological viewpoints, and as church leaders try to impact the direction of all United Methodists with their influence. I've been involved in my share of political debates, and that doesn't end when we step into church. 
I'd like to tell you a story that my pastor, Jeff Posgate, tells about a pastor that he knew named Barry Woodward. Barry came from England, and he served several churches in Missouri. Some of you may have met Barry at some point. It didn't take Barry and Pastor Jeff very long to figure out that they were just on totally separate ends of the political spectrum. Um, they didn't agree on anything from the purpose of the church. Jeff thought that the purpose of the church was just the Great Commission. And Barry thought it was to love and tolerate each other and, and just find a way for us all to get along. Uh, they didn't agree on human sexuality or abortion or reproductive rights. Uh, just one issue after another, they lined up on opposite ends. Uh, they had debates against each other on the floor at annual conference. Uh, they wrote letters to the editor of the denominational newspaper arguing with one another. Barry and Jeff were known opponents or in, in politics and in the church. And many of you right now are thinking about people who you've had experiences like that with. You're thinking about people that uh, are on the opposite side of your political fence and that you've had those conversations with. We'll come back to Barry and Jeff in a moment. The founder of our branch of the Christian family tree, Methodism, was John Wesley. And he was a priest, a priest in the Church of England in the 1700s. He was the leader of a revival that swept through England and into North America, created a whole generation of renewed and new followers of Jesus Christ. John Wesley was deeply involved in politics in his day. He was opposed to the marketing of cheap grain alcohol to poor people. He fought the slave trade in England. And believe it or not, he was an avid opponent of the American Revolution. He urged his followers of Jesus in the 18th century, and he gave them directions and voting in 1774. And I believe that those directions that he gave in 1774 are still consistent with what we believe as United Methodists and for those of us who follow Christ, and they're very applicable today. There are three points to what Wesley said. The first is this. He said to vote without fee or reward for the person that you judge most worthy. That seems like common sense, right? Two things to note here. First, without fee or reward. That is, without an eye towards what benefits yourself. Most voters lean towards who will best make life what they want it to be. We don't have that luxury. The Christian leader Paul reminds us that if we have the mind and the heart of Christ inside of us, we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And that's Philippians 2, 3. Jesus' followers must always consider not just what it is best for us, but what is best for everyone. Second, the whole issue of a worthy candidate. There's a whole lot wrapped up in that word. Worthiness is not how a candidate happens to align with my opinions. For those who follow Jesus, worthiness is based on a whole different criteria. The earliest confession of faith is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Philippians 2.11. Lord was a title acknowledging authority and supreme power. Uh, a slave would call his master Lord. A soldier would call his commander Lord. A Roman citizen would call the emperor Lord. The Lord, the Lord was reserved only for the emperor in the first century. No one else was able to be called the Lord. In defiance and faith, the first century Christians ascribed that very title to Jesus alone. They would only call Jesus the Lord. And many paid for it with their lives. If Jesus was Lord then that meant Caesar was not. If Jesus is Lord, 
the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, human political philosophy, none of it can be Lord. The second direction that John Wesley gave us in 1774 was to speak no evil of the person that you vote against. Negative campaigning is taken for granted in our culture. Well, he started it, or they started it. Any of you guys have more than one kid? Have you guys ever been through that? My mom's here today, and she'll vouch for the fact that I, I never started it. Not one time. Besides that, we just don't have the right to call names and bicker, and we have to give it up when we take on Jesus. We just can't do that. Values of the world will demonize one side or the other in an election. Uh, Obama will carry this country into socialized ruin, and Romney will cut taxes on, uh, for the wealthy and take us back into deregulated ruin. Neither party needs any help from the Christians to make the other guy look like the son of the devil. They're going to do it on their own. If true to form, Republicans will emphasize personal responsibility. They have a high moral compass and they have right individual choices and they value uh, responsibility of the self and they do things the right way. In, what, uh, in religious language, that would be called righteousness, which is a right relationship with God. And then the Democrats uh, are to be commended for the fact that they liberalize morality and they declare a new way of looking at what is right. And if true to form, the Democrats will emphasize social responsibility. They take care of the poor and the powerless and they have uh, unwavering tolerance toward all people and lifestyles. And what religious language would be called justice, which is a right relationship with humans, with one another. The claim that Republicans and, and, and Democrats would claim that Republicans have no heart for those in need and they don't care about leveling the playing field for all humans. And the attacks would go back and forth. Rather than join in the attacks, people of our faith are obligated to point out that the heart of God seeks both righteousness and justice. Keeping the bar high on our personal, moral, and spiritual responsibility and answering the call to see the presence of Christ and the poor and the outcast and the stranger, as God's spokesman Amos said eight centuries before Jesus, but let justice flow down like a river and righteousness flow like a never-failing stream. That's Amos 5.24. Instead of speaking negatively about your candidate or any candidate, our job is to speak positively about the whole heart of God revealed in the crucified and risen Jesus. Finally, John Wesley warns us to take care that your spirit is not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. Easier said than done, right? We have all heard about the golden rule, even uh, if it's been secularized. You may have heard about it in school and not even known that it was a biblical concept. The golden rule says this, Do unto others as you would have others do to you. That's the scripture we read earlier, Matthew seven twelve. That would be confusing to many people today, especially if you listen to a lot of political campaigning. Act as if the golden rule has been uh, suspended or called off. It doesn't take long to turn on the radio or the TV or the internet or any other social media, and you're going to see a lot of muckraking on both sides. The golden rule is taken out of context. It does not just mean that you don't like to be hit, so I don't want others, or I don't want to go hit someone else. It means, <clears throat> excuse me, it means that this is how it should be done to you. You, like all of us, have broken the heart of God who created you. God has been faithful to you, and you have not been faithful to him. 
God is within His rights to abandon you at this very moment and leave you to die. But His love for you is too great to do that. Instead of abandoning you, He comes alongside you. And I want to introduce you to that living God in human form. His name is Jesus. And by the way, the punishment that is due you, the pain that life has brought you, the crushing sense of unworthiness and loneliness and just being lost that is yours, He will carry all of that for you. Right to the cross and beyond. That's how it's been done for you. Now that, for, now that you must do that for others. Followers of Jesus, every one of the people who will vote for the other side in 2012 is worthy of the cross. And it is the command of the one who died for you that you treat them with respect. Because that's all of us, no matter what party label we wear. And so back to Jeff and Barry. At one statewide United Methodist meeting, Barry and Jeff were fighting as usual. It was a playoff year, so it was 1985 or 1986, and there were no iPhones or laptops or any other way to watch, uh, watch the ball game except for where Barry happened to be. So that night, Jeff and Barry watched the ball game. After all, how bad could Barry really be if he's a Cardinals fan? The Holy Spirit did some convincing that night. It said to my pastor Jeff that uh, he's just a guy like you. He's just stumbling around in this life trying to find his way. He's had the same, uh, uh, the same opportunities and the same stumbling blocks that you have. And he's a child of mine, Jeff. Maybe you should treat him that way. What would that be like in a national election? Instead of lining up and throwing labels and saying God is on this side or God is on that side, what if we just practice those three rules? Let's try that in this November. And I'd like to just close with uh, one little challenge for you guys. If everybody will close your eyes, and I want you to imagine that you're in that ballot box, you're in that voting booth this year, and you see the ballot in front of you. You have two names. Lord, we all know what those two names are. And there's a checkbox beside each name. You can only check one. All right, go ahead in your mind and go ahead and check the box of who you're going to vote for this November for president. Now, look at the name that doesn't have a check mark beside it. Right now, to yourself, we're going to take a few seconds and I want you to pray for that name of the man who's on the other side. 